if you can, that you come away with one way that you know you can pray for them. Okay? One way that you know you can pray for them. So say hello, give them your name, get their name. Well, you already got their name, Godfrey and Marie. But just say, hey, I need to get one way I can pray for you. Okay? Be sure that you do that. Steve and Yvonne are at a conference, a Piper conference. It's got an interesting title. It's called uh, Powerful Words and the Wonder of God. Powerful Words and the Wonder of God. Um, I'm sure Steve will have uh, something to tell us about how God used that uh, in his life. Um, This is uh, a rather new study Bible. It's called the Literary Study Bible. The reason I'm showing it to you is, uh, you may not know this, but this Bible uh, was given to 50 pastors in the Philippines who attended an exposition workshop um, about three or four, about four or five weeks ago now, I guess. And it's, uh, it's in the English Standard Version. So it's another very good word-for-word translation uh, of the Bible, like the NASB. And um, But the reason it's called a literary study Bible is because the notes in it, the study notes in it, provide whoever's using it with um, ways to look and understand the differences between the different literature that makes up the Bible. And it's the kind of study notes that not every pastor in uh, some little village out somewhere in the Philippines is going to have at their disposal. So Rock Valley Bible Church contributed the money to buy these so that I could take them to the Philippines and give them to them. Now, when we gave it to them, you'd have thought we'd given, given them gold. Okay, You'd have thought that the way they... They uh, they received it and and the gratefulness. I wish you could have been there to see it, but I want to tell you about it. There, they we told them where it came from, uh, that it was a gift of God from God through you to them. So thank you. Now it's interesting that while Lee and I were there, we were there in the Philippines visiting our sister churches there for about five weeks. It's a long time. We visited actually six different churches and there were a lot of things that all those same churches had in common. Oh, by the way, there's a confusing thing in your bulletin today. There's two outlines for this message. Take your pick. No, 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 no. Get the one that says at the top, the mystery of godliness. Okay? The problem was, early in the week, I was going to package it one way. Later in the week, I decided to package it another. So it's the mystery of godliness. That's what we're going to be talking about. But while we were there, one of the things we noticed about each of the churches that we visited is they had a shortage of elders and deacons. And we we have been to those some of those same churches every other year for a long time. Some of the elders and deacons who had been in some of these churches were gone. They were nowhere to be found because of sin. They sinned. They refused to repent. And they were gone. 
But that's not just a Philippine problem. The, the not having enough when it comes to elders and deacons in the life of a local church. Kishwaukee Bible Church, that's the mother church of this church. A few years ago, we had five elders and two deacons. Today, we have three elders and two deacons. We don't have enough. And you know that one of the reasons that I'm here spending a few days a week helping out here is for the purpose, at least one of the purposes is, to, to, to work on developing the next generation of leaders in the life of this church. So how are we to think about this lack? How are we to think about this problem? Is this just an issue now in the 21st century? Is it, is it something that comes up because the pressures of life now, today, are so much greater that, 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 than they've been in the past? That we can't seem to find the quantity and the quality of men to be elders and deacons in the life of the church? Is it, is, is it a cultural thing? Is it a today thing? I don't think so. And you say, well, why don't you think so? Well, as Paul was writing to Timothy, the last two verses of that letter uh, tell Timothy, warn Timothy to guard what he had been entrusted uh, because there, there would be those who would fall away from it. Um, now, the thing that he was to guard was the mystery of godliness. And, and even though the purpose of this message is to unfold what that is, I'm going to tell you at the beginning what it is. Then we'll unfold it, and then I'll tell you at the beginning what it is. I mean, at the end, what it is. Okay? Because here's, here's my goal. I don't want this to be a mystery when you leave. It might be a mystery now, but I don't want it to be a mystery when you leave. Okay? The mystery of godliness is... Another way of, of talking about it is how does God make sinners like us godly? How does he do that? How does he make us godly enough that we could be leaders in a church, that we could actually have character and behavior that matches up with the description that, are, that, that is in the Bible for elders and deacons? How could that be? Well, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to take a look at today. And by the time we're done, I trust that God will have revealed that to us as, he, as we look at his word. Now, that for that to happen, we need his help. So let's pray. Father, I ask you that as we look at your word, you'll give us ears to hear, that you'll give us hearts to understand that you'll give us a willingness to embrace that which you do reveal of yourself to your people. Father, I pray that you'll make it so clear that the parents who are here will understand and be able to answer the questions that their children have. Dad, what's the mystery of godliness? How can a kid like me become like God? Father, we know how much we need you to help us do that. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. 
Now, for those of you who are Bible scholars, as soon as you hear me say 1 Timothy 3, you say in your mind, oh yeah, qualifications of elders and deacons. And probably most of the sermons that you've heard uh, from 1 Timothy 3 have been to that end. Qualifications of elders and deacons. And that would be appropriate. But most of those sermons end at verse 13. And they need to proceed a little farther. Especially to verse 16. Verse 16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then it proceeds to begin to explain what the mystery of godliness is. Now, earlier in this chapter, chapter 3, are the qualifications of elders and deacons. Now, on your outline there, um, what I've done is I've, I've put into two categories those qualifications. You know, there's a lot of ways to take the qualifications of elders, deacons, and their wives and to think about them. You can think about them. These apply to elders. These apply to deacons. These apply to their wives. You can think about them, though, in another perspective. And this is the other perspective. All of these qualifications fit under two, can fit under two headings. What it takes to manage your household well as a gospel man. What it takes to have a good reputation in every relationship you're in, inside the church and outside the church. Now, if you look at the left-hand side there, under managing your household well, we're not going to go through all these, but verse 3 says that an elder needs to be a husband of one wife. That means he needs to be a one-woman man. He needs to have, only have eyes for her. And that's so, and, and it's so true that she knows that that's the way it is. And she revels in his love for her. Verse 4 says that he also manages his household well. So well that his children are under control without a whip. With all dignity. That's the Yonkey paraphrase. Okay. In other words, he doesn't have a hammer saying, if you don't obey, I'm going to club you. Okay. That there's a managing of his children. They're under control because he knows how to use the gospel with little sinners. Just the way God has used it with him, a big sinner. Verse 5 says, he'll shepherd the church in the same way he shepherds her and them. Okay? So almost all of these qualifications, or a good part of them, have to do with family. Okay? Have to do with family. Deacons, basically, in the, in the sections for deacons, they're basically a repeat of the above. Oh yeah, there's a couple of nuanced differences, but the same is true about the family, and shepherding the family. And, and so it's, it's for that reason when we're looking for men to be elders and deacons in the life of the church, we look to see what, what do they do in their family? How do they love their wives? How do they shepherd their children? And then on the other column there, all, 
all of the qualifications that are listed there, and I've got them down in a box at the bottom, like temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a fighter, gentle, that whole list, are, are things that are character qualities of them that, that are put on display in their families and in every relationship of life inside the church, every relationship of life that they have inside the church, and every relation outside the church. And so as we think about conduct in the church of God, this is part of it. This is part of it. The conduct in the church among us, this, is, this isn't just something for people who aspire to be elders or deacons or the wives of an elder or a deacon. These, this is to be true of every single one of us. These qualities are to be true of our interacting with each other. And so we see, don't we? We see people fail at this. And more importantly, listen to me now, more importantly, what they do when they fail. See, it's one thing to fail. Is there anybody in this room who's never sinned, never failed? No. question is, is what do you do when you fail? So, this conduct in that, look at, look at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I'm writing these things to you. What things? This whole letter. Not just chapter 3. This whole letter. I'm writing this letter to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I can't, in case I don't get there, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth about God. Okay? All right, so we're talking about leadership today. We're talking about church leadership, but by definition, we're talking about family leadership. And we're talking about, if you say, well, I don't have a family, then we're talking about the relationships that you have within the family of God and outside the family of God in every environment that's there. So nobody gets out of this. (laughs) Okay, we're all... This letter is to us. And this idea about the mystery of godliness is for us. Okay? Look at verse 16 again. I'm going to read it, and I want you to decide what you think is, is being described here. Okay? By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Here we go. Six statements. He who was revealed in the flesh. What could that be talking about? Was vindicated in the spirit. Was beheld by angels. Was proclaimed among the nations. Was believed on in the world. Was taken up into glory. That is all in reference to something or someone who is the mystery of godliness. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Yeah. Aren't you glad the first two, the first and the last one are there? <laughs> yeah, without those, I don't know, it might be harder. Revealed in the flesh, yeah. Taken up into glory, yeah. That's, that's Jesus Christ. These are six systematic theology statements. These are a compressed view of 
six very important things that Jesus Christ did that impact us. But here's why this verse is in chapter 3. The mystery of godliness, how men and women become godly enough to be leaders in the church, is, is, is intimately connected to Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. The reason it's a mystery, the reason is this connection between our behavior, our conduct, our character, and Jesus Christ is a mystery to us even, is because we, we make that connection by faith. That's why it's a mystery. That's why it's a mystery. We're not good at, at grabbing onto things we can't see. Are you with me? We're not good at grabbing onto things we can't see. And when God says, my son will help you with this, you say, yeah, where is he? Okay, well, how, how, do we, how do we make a connect with him? Well, we're going to see, and I'll give you just a little hint. The first, thing we, we, the first way we make a connect with Jesus Christ to get what we need to be what he wants is by becoming really good at prayer. Really good at prayer. Now, I'm not going to ask you to actually raise your hand, but I wish I could. How many of you are really good at prayer? Maybe if I asked it this way, how many of you would like to be really good at prayer? All right. See, I didn't even have to. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'd like to be better, a lot better than I am, than I am at prayer. All right. So that's what this mystery is. It's a mystery because we get it by trusting in what we can't see. Not what we can see, but what we can't see. Now, just quickly, a little context for chapter 3. Turn to chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. This letter starts with a warning from Paul, the apostle, to Timothy, the pastor. And the warning, we, we hear it starting in verse 3. I urge you, remain at Ephesus, instruct men not to teach strange things, like myths or genealogies or anything else that gives rise to speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, don't get, don't get messed up in the myths and the genealogies and the whatever else. What is Paul doing? He's saying, Timothy, you stay focused on the work of God, which is by faith. That's what, you stay focused on that. And you be sure your church stays focused on the work of God, which is by faith. Dear ones, listen to me now. There is no work of God that takes place by the flesh. It takes place all, 100% by faith in Him. Now, parents, I want you to think about the number of times you've disciplined your children that wasn't by faith in Him. Whew. You get on your knees and repent 
you, you get behind, I get behind the pulpit and hide in shame. We do the things expected of us by God apart from the way that He expects for us to do them, which is by faith in Him, almost constantly. That's why this is such a mystery. It's not a mystery in that we don't know. It's a mystery in the sense we don't make the connection. And we must. We must make the connection. So, avoid any distraction which takes you away from thinking about doing what God wants by faith in Him, and particularly by faith in His Son. Verse 5. How will you know when you've done it? How will you know when you're operating by faith? Look at verse 5. One five. You ready? But the goal of our instruction is, say it, love. The goal of our instruction, Paul writes to Timothy, I'm writing this letter for one reason. I want the church to love. I want the church to love. You'll know when you're walking by faith in Jesus Christ because you will love. You will love those even who don't love you. Which, of course, is... Does that happen in families ever? Yeah, it does. Does that happen in relationships here in the church? Yes, it does. You'll know when you're walking by faith because you'll see yourself giving somebody what they don't deserve, being patient with them, being kind to them, thinking the best of them, not taking into account a wrong suffered. You'll know. Love is the defining evidence of walking by faith in Jesus Christ. Always. Never any exception to that. You see a lack of love, you know somebody's walking in the flesh. You see love, they're walking in the Spirit. Okay? That's the context for this. That helps us. That helps us to know. This is also the, the conduct. So the thing that we, we, we are to walk by faith in what we can't see and the thing that we will see is love. That's how we'll know. So you want to know who the next generation of elders and deacons and their wives are in this church? Watch for the people who love in their families and in this family and in, and in the relationships that they have out in the world. Look for them. Look for them when you know it's hard for them. See what they're doing then. One last thing on the other bookend, chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says, in the latter times, in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Why is this such? Why do we have such a lack? Because even though we know some fall away. Now, the names of two guys that fell away at Ephesus are in this letter. Their names are there. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Their names are written there. Aren't you glad that there's not a letter with the name of every one of us who's failed to walk by faith so much so that there's been no love? And so we got mentioned in a letter. Yeah, I am. I'm glad. Because my name would be in that letter. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only for old women. On the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, 
discipline yourself for the purpose of what? Godliness. Discipline. Work hard at this. Trusting Jesus Christ. Trusting what you can't see. Crying out to Him to enable you to love those you can see. Look at verse 8. The second part of verse 8. Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for this life, the present life, and also for the life to come. All right. Now, we're going to unfold these six statements. And when we're done, I hope we understand just a little bit better uh, of what, how Jesus Christ is the connection to godly living. See, in one sense, you already know enough that you know this isn't a mystery anymore. Christ is the one I must embrace to do what God asks me to do. So the mystery is starting to go away. Now, here's what we're going to do. For each of these six statements, for each of these six statements, we're going to look at what the scriptures say about, we're going to look at one passage that has something to say about each one. We're going to identify how you can make a faith connection to what Christ has for you. And then we're going to show you how to apply it a little bit or how that application is important. Now, just one more word before we look at each one. Managing your household well and having a good reputation in relationships is two things. It is the laboratory of the Christian life. Your family and your relationships are the laboratory in which which godliness gets put on display or not. Okay? It's the laboratory. It's the place that godliness gets put on display. But it's also... It's also the leadership training center for the church. Did you know that the leadership training center for Rock Valley Bible Church is in Dirk Reed's house for him? It's in his house for him. That's the place where the leadership training of this church begins in his house for him, in my house for me, in Andy's house for him. That's why it's important that each of us say, okay, I'm going to be able to tell how well I'm doing or how badly I'm doing, how badly I'm failing by looking there at my family and at my relationships. Okay, he was revealed in the flesh. Well, there's a lot of places we could turn to in the scriptures, but I want you to turn to Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Okay, I'm going to go real quick here, okay, if I can. Four, four to seven. You there? Galatians four, four to seven. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. See, he was revealed in the flesh. Born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, 
آبا Therefore you are no longer a slave you're a son and if you're a son then you're an heir you have everything in the house of God it's yours by faith through prayer See as a result of Jesus coming to the earth the Galatians were redeemed they were adopted in the family of God they were heirs they're given the spirit of Jesus and the and the the one one of the faith connections in this passage is prayer. See, if you if you want to be a godly man, a godly woman, then prayer, 24-7 access to God is open to you. Open to you all the time. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into my heart. How do I know that? Because when I'm in trouble, when I have a need, when I sin... And I cry out, Father, forgive me. Father, help me. That's an evidence of the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who causes us to cry out, Father, help me. Abba, help me. So if you want to grow in your prayer life, and a lot of you stuck up your hand, you do, then you need to call... God, help help me. In the first place, I need help with my prayer life to to cry out to you more. And to be, and to, see, have you ever, have you ever had this happen to you? I've had this happen to me. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, in a moment of great need in my life, says, why don't you ask me? Why don't you trust me? Why don't you cry out to me? And I say, no, I can do this myself. I I can take care of this myself. Now, you don't actually say that. I don't actually say that. I just try to do it myself. Until it becomes evident to me that I can't and I'm getting run over. Then, I say, help. Father, help. Okay. You ever wonder why it takes your kids so long to learn? They got parents. They got parents that are slow learners. Uh, At least... Mine did. Mine did. So this is this is a family problem, isn't it? Now, the application, the laboratory of Christian life and the training center for the church is at at work, elders and deacons and their wives at Ephesus and at Galatia have to know by experience the power of prayer. And elders and deacons must be known for this. They have to be known as men and women who are good at crying out to God in prayer. So the first thing that they do when they're, when they're up against a situation in their family or in a relationship that they know they need what only God can provide is they remember who they are in Christ. Redeemed, adopted, heirs, and as heirs, they can cry out to Him anytime. And so they cry out, Abba. Men and women known for prayer in every situation that takes place in their family. How will you know it? How will you know when that's, what the, when that's who they are? How will you know when they're men and women of prayer? The goal of our instruction is love. When you see them love, 
you'll know that they've been crying out to God in prayer. If you don't, if you see them unable to love, you'll know what the need is. It's to cry out to Christ in prayer. Help me. Give me what I need. You have given me what I need. I'm redeemed. I'm adopted into your family. I'm an heir. You've given me the spirit to cry out to you. Help me do that. And where you see it not happening, you know the flesh is there and really going to town. Second, second, second phrase. Not only was he revealed in the flesh, but he was vindicated in the spirit. This is a little cryptic. This one's a little hard to understand. In what way was Jesus vindicated in the spirit? Well, it took place at the cross. It took place at the cross. See, at the cross, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Did it look good or bad? Did it look good or bad? It looked bad. It looked bad. He was dying. He had been put on trial. He had been convicted. And he looked guilty because he was dying. Then there was something else that transpired there that couldn't be seen. When he was there on that cross, God, the Father, put all the sins of his people on Jesus. Did it look Worse or better? Looked worse. It looked worse. It looked like he was guilty. And when the father took, turns his back on him and lets him die, did it look better or worse? Worse. He must be guilty. He must be guilty. How did the Spirit vindicate him? How did the, what did the Spirit of God do that said, He's not guilty? He raised Him from the dead. Three days later, in spite of all the efforts of the Roman Empire to keep it from happening, because they'd been told about the prophecy. So they put up guards. They put the biggest rock they could find in front of it. And the power of God and the Spirit of God blew that thing wide open and and took him out of there. And he's vindicated by the Spirit. He's not guilty. Ephesians 1, 18. Write this down in your notes. Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. This is the commentary in the Scriptures on that. I pray, Paul says, writing to the church at Ephesus, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And you know what? I'm going, to t- I'm going to grab those words. I pray that the eyes of your heart are going to be enlightened. That you're going to be able to see things you haven't seen before. Like what? That you may know how much hope there is in His calling of you before the foundation of the world when He chose you. How powerful is that? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? You know, we always think we have an inheritance in Him, and we do. But that's not what this is talking about. He has an inheritance, and you know what it is? You. You're His inheritance. And then one more thing. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power given to those who believe? All of this is in accordance with the working of God's strength 
of his, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Because Jesus was raised, the Ephesians had, were changed. They could see things they hadn't been able to see before. The hope of their calling. How rich they were because they were God's inheritance. Christ's inheritance. And the power that he was giving to them all the time. All the time. Constantly to ensure that his calling is fulfilled and that his inheritance gets to heaven. So what's the faith connection here? The faith connection, you'll know somebody's walking by faith when in the midst of, of, a, of a family problem of great proportions, when husband and wife are fighting or kids and, and, and parents can't get along, in the midst of that, the parents can say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't who we are. We're His. He's given us power. Let's use that now. Let's trust in His power now. So in the church at Ephesus, there were elders and deacons and their wives who in those kinds of situations saw the situation through the eyes of faith. And it caused them to remember that Christ is the head of the church and all things in it. Which means that that fight, that problem between parent and kid or husband and wife, that, that he's the head of that. He's got what is needed for that. Now, would you rather win the argument? Would you rather win the fight? Or would you rather have eyes that can see what Christ alone can provide for you to win the fight through the gospel? Give to her, give to him what they don't deserve, just like God has dealt with you. Which would you rather have? Well, I'll tell you what, you asked me at the wrong time and I'd rather win the fight. Right? You've been there? You'd rather win the argument? Say, God, give me eyes to see the power that you're giving so I can love the gospel more than I love to win the argument. So the first thing they do is they remember that Christ is the head of all things, including that problem. And, and the second thing they do is they depend on the power of the resurrection of Christ to intervene in that situation. Let me ask you this. Listen. Let me ask you this. Why are you a Christian? You are a Christian. You're in Christ because he intervened in your life. Isn't that true? You didn't seek me. I sought you. I intervened. You see what he's promising? He's promising an intervening power in the problem you think is unsolvable in your family or in some relationship of life. And he wants you to trust him. Cry out to him. Elders and deacons have got to be known as men and women of faith in the power of God in every situation that takes place in their family and in every relationship in and outside the church. How will you know if they are? How will you know if they are? The goal of our our instruction is love. They will love you. No matter what's going on. They'll be patient with you no matter what's going on. They'll be kind to you no matter what's going on. They won't take anything you do that's hurtful against them and say, you've got to pay me back. Instead, they're going to give you back what you don't deserve. 
So much so they're going to become known for that. Make them an elder. Make them a deacon. That's what they got to know. Now, it's just not what elders and deacons have to know. All of you are, are the pool of Christians here. We're all in the same thing. Eh, we might make it. Third, third session, third statement. Beheld by angels. This is another troublesome one. What does he mean when he says, great is the mystery of godliness and it's Christ beheld by angels? Yeah, so what? Yeah, so what? What does that mean, beheld by angels? You know, if you took the time to go through the scriptures and find out every time the angels were present when Jesus was doing something, there, there would be a lot. They were there at the beginning, weren't they? When Jesus was born, what were the angels doing? They were singing. When, 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 when the stone was rolled away from the tomb at the end of his earthly ministry, what were the angels doing? Well, there was one sitting there in the tomb, wasn't it? And when the disciples and the women and the followers came and, the, and he said, he's not here. He's risen just as he said, the power of God, the, the promise of God. The angels were there. Now, write in your notes, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 13. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 13. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but it might be good if you get excited about this one to read it. Let me paraphrase what it says. Peter is writing and he's saying, you know what? The prophets who have been writing, all the, all the Old Testament prophets, were looking ahead, trying to understand what they were writing about. They, they were writing, God was moving them to write, but they didn't understand it. They were trying to understand the grace that would be brought to the people of God. They were writing about it. They were writing about the one who would come. And they said, who are we writing about? He said, just write. Just write. You'll understand. You'll see it someday. They longed to hear it. The apostles were preaching about this grace, this undeserved favor of God that was being brought to the people of God through Jesus Christ. They were preaching it. So the prophets were trying to understand it. The the apostles were preaching it to, to, so the people would understand. And then it says this, and it says, even angels long to look into these things. As long as there have been angels and they knew what the plan of God was, they said, did you see what he's doing? Do you see what his plan is with those people? His plan is to give them what they don't deserve. They deserve separation from God and hell. That's what they deserve. But his plan is to be merciful to him, to be gracious to him. And, and it's like the angels are saying, oh, oh, did you see that? I wonder how that's going to work out. And then they sing of it when he comes. And the, and the tomb, they say, he's not here, it's done. Now, verse 13. Therefore, because of that, Dear Christians in the first century church and now us, gird your mind for action. In other words, get ready to think about this. Keep sober in spirit. Here it is. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed. I want to say it again. I want you to think about it. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed. What is that? 
What should you fix your hope completely on? When Jesus is revealed. Well, certainly it would be everything here. But ultimately, it's when, when, when we're standing before him, God the Father, with Jesus Christ, and all the fullness of his work is, is put on display. It's saying, fix your eyes on the grace that's going to be brought to you in the end. Okay? Here's the, here's the grace. Here's the connection. Here's the faith connection. Dear ones, he's calling us to look ahead to the, to, to the throne room of God. What if that were going to happen at 3 o'clock this afternoon? What if Jesus was going to come at 3 o'clock this afternoon? And we, all of us who are in Christ, would be standing at 3 o'clock in the throne room of God. There's God the Father on, on the throne. He said, fix your hope completely on this situation. Well, so far it's a scary situation. Me before the holy, holy, holy God. But wait a minute. Who's with me? Well, millions of people. Who else is with me? Jesus Christ is with me. And he says, Father, see all these? These are the ones you gave me. I've, I've, I've saved them. I've kept them. I gave them everything they needed all the way along. And I got them here. Here they are. I'm giving them back to you. It's a trophy of grace. That's what's going to happen. That is what's going to happen. He says, "You, if to connect, to connect with His provision for you in Christ, you think about the end. You think about the end, and you say, if He can do that, then He can handle this situation I'm in now. I trust Him. I trust Him. The faith connection is minds fixed on the grace to be brought to us at the end." And then you work it out in the laboratory of the Christian life in your home. You work it out in the laboratory of your relationships. See, elders in the first century church as now and their wives must fix their hope completely on this. God is going to give me what I don't deserve. Say that with me. God is going to give me what I don't deserve. Say it again. God is going to give me what I don't deserve. Fix your mind completely on that. He is going to give me what I don't deserve for this situation. And once you do that, then you're, then you're able to speak of grace and to give away that same grace, that same undeserved, unmerited favor that God has given you to somebody else, to a member of your family, to somebody in a relationship at work, at school, and if it's particularly difficult and they're smashing you in the mouth, then you're going to be crying out to Abba. Abba, help me. I can't do this. Only you can give me what I need to do this. I want to be... I want to be one who gives people what they don't deserve. Like you have dealt with me. Elders and deacons and their wives must be known as men and women of grace in every situation that takes place in their families and in every relationship of life. How will you know when they are? The goal of our instruction is love. 
That's how you know. That's how you know when you are. And if you're not, and if you're not, then what? What are you going to do if you're not? Well, you're going to go back to number one. Pray. You're going to cry out to me. You're going to say, help me. Number four, proclaimed among the nations. 2 Corinthians 5, turn there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Proclaimed among the nations. All right, so here's what we're doing. We're, we're in the process. We're on, we're on the fourth of six descriptors of what Christ brings to you so that you can live godly. Can't be done any other way. This is what he brings. Well, what's he bringing here? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled to us to himself through Christ. Now listen to this now. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, or this is what I'm talking about, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Wow. See, this is what he's going to ask of us. If he didn't count our trespasses against us, if we are walking in his steps, he's going to say, now I want you to not count their trespasses against them. Because of what Christ had done, the Corinthians were made new creatures in Christ. They were reconciled to God and their sins were no longer counted against them. Now, I want to expand that for you just a little bit. Not talking about just the sin they committed that day. Their past sin, their current sin, and any sin they they commit in the future. All of that is not counted against them. How, How could that be? What happened to that sin? What was done with that sin? Okay, well, I got my arms out. What was done with that sin? It was put on Christ. There is no wrath of God for sin for those who are in Christ. There's only mercy. That's what the Corinthians had received. What's the faith connection here? What's the faith connection? This may be one of the very hardest. You need to embrace His forgiveness for your sin. You say this, in the midst of your sin, when you're the most discouraged with your sin because you've done it again and again and again and again, you say, by faith, Lord, I know in Jesus Christ I am, I was forgiven, I am forgiven, I will be forgiven. In your mind, say it. I was forgiven, I am being forgiven. I will be forgiven. My sin is not counted against me. And when you embrace that, you've got the beginnings of what you need to give away to somebody else that kind of thing. Elders and deacons and their wives in the first century church and now have got to rejoice in the fact that God is not counting their sins against them. 
And when they do, they depend on Him to be merciful. See, in the midst of sin, with their kids, with their wife, with their husband, they're saying, you know what? There's something I know about sin. I know about it because I'm a sinner. And I understand what you're going through. But I want to tell you something. He has forgiven me and He will forgive you. Have you ever said that to your kids? I'm the biggest sinner in this house. I'm the biggest sinner in this family. Or in a relationship. I'm the biggest sinner in this relationship. So I understand. I've sinned too. More than you have. More than you know. But here's the good news. He's forgiven me in Christ. He'll forgive you. Elders and deacons and their wives, every family in this church, every person in this church is called to be a person who revels in the reconciliatory work of Jesus Christ. That He took God, a thrice holy God, and He brought Him together with the worst of sinners at the cross of Jesus Christ. And how do you know whether men and women that you're considering for church leadership are that kind of a person? The goal of our instruction is love. If there's love, there's probably faith. If there's no love, there is not. Don't make him a leader. God has more to teach him first. You see, what's, what's, the, what's the greatest qualification of an elder or deacon? They know what love is. They know where it comes from. They know how to get it for themselves. And they know how to give it away to you. Without that, Number five, believed on in the world. In Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, it's a great commission. Okay, Jesus said to the disciples, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth." So here's what I want you to do: go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them what I've told you, and here's the good news: I will be with you forever. Always, even to the end, I'll be with you. On the last, on the day before Jesus died, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying to his Father. And he said, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. How? How is it? that he was wanting the Father to glorify him so that he could glorify the Father. Here's what he said. Even as you gave me authority over all mankind, that to all that you have given to me, I may give eternal life. You see, the disciples were to go to the nations with a message. Our Savior has the authority to save the worst of sinners. Parents, have you ever wondered if he, if he was powerful enough to save your kid? I did. Lee and I did. Every one of our kids we did. Is he, is he powerful enough to save this one? Does he have the authority to save this one? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. 
And that's the message we take. He's the one who saves. We just tell you about the one who saves. But he's the one that's got the authority to save. And you know what what did he say to those disciples? I've got the authority to save. Here's your job. You go tell them that, and then you disciple the ones I save. You go and tell them that I'm the one who'll save. And then when I save, you disciple them. If God puts them in your family, you disciple them. If God brings somebody into your sphere of influence and he saved them, you disciple them. You say, well, I may not know enough to do that. Tell them what you know. You don't have to tell them what you don't know. Disciple them with what you do know. So the faith connection in this statement is this. A heart to disciple those he saves and puts near you. Do you have a heart to disciple those who he saves and puts near you? Husbands, listen to me. Are you too busy to disciple your wife? Then you're too busy to be an elder or a deacon. Because the laboratory for the life of godliness and for living that out is family. And then every relationship. On the other hand, you might say, well... I I am discipling my wife and my family and people begin to notice and they say, wow, you know what love is. Even when it's not deserved, you know how to give it. Would you be an elder in the church? Would you be a deacon in the church? Men, don't say no then. God has been raising you up. He gave you what you need to do what he wants you to do here. The only one who should say no is the one who doesn't know. And say, give me some time. Give me some time. Disciple me. Help me. Because I'm failing at this. Okay. Remember that the one with the authority is always with you. Remember to depend on the one who is always with you to help you disciple. Elders and deacons must be known as men and women who have a heart to disciple in every situation in their family and in every situation in relationships. How can you tell if they're doing that? The goal of our instruction is love. That's the goal for the whole letter. It's love. You'll know it when you see it. Let me flesh that out just a little bit. In your family... Somebody's failed, your wife's failed, your husband's failed, your kids have failed. And you say, you know what? I understand. I remember when I didn't understand. I remember when I trusted myself too. He helped me then. He forgave me then. He gave me what I needed then to trust Him. He'll help you. That's what discipleship is. Last one. Taken up to glory. Romans 8. Turn there. Romans 8. 31. Taken up to glory. Here's the comment of the scriptures on this. What shall we say to these things? This is verse 31. And what are these things? All that God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been talking about in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? Here's what he says. If God is for us, finish it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is that a statement of faith or flesh? That's faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not, how will he not freely with Christ give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, and rather was raised and is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there? He's interceding for us. Because Jesus is at the right hand of God, the Romans have God on their side. Because Jesus is at the right hand of God, they've been given everything they need. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? He's praying for us. What's the faith connection? Confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is praying for us. Tell you what, you don't want confidence in yourself. You want confidence in knowing that Jesus is praying for us. So in the laboratory of your life, your family, in the laboratory of your life, the relationships God has placed around you, you remember this. Jesus is with me and in him I have all things. And I trust that he is praying for me to the Father. And that's how I'm going to get all things. Elders and deacons and their wives have to be men and women of confidence in God and the fact that Jesus is praying for us to the Father. How will we know they are? How will we know they are? We're going to see them doing what? Loving. The goal of our instruction is love. All right. 1 Timothy 1.19 1 Timothy 1.19 This is the conclusion. Second part of verse 19 says, Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. What was the problem Hymenaeus and Alexander were having? They walked away from a life of faith in Jesus Christ for something else. Now, they were in the church. They just embraced something else other than what they have in Jesus Christ. They've walked away from the faith. And Paul says, I've handled them, I've handed them over to Satan. For what purpose? So that they'll be smashed and gone forever? So we can get rid of them, those no goods? No. So that they'll be taught not to blaspheme the work of God and the provision of God in his son. See, he's looking for them to turn around. So they'll be taught not to kick them out, but so they'll turn and they'll... they'll... What was Paul trusting in? What did he think was powerful enough to do that? Look at chapter 1, verse 12. This is his own testimony. Here's what he thought was powerful enough to do that. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me. He considered me faithful putting me into service even though I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be a persecutor. I used to be a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because 
I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. That's what he thought was going to turn Hymenaeus and Alexander around. Dear ones, it's not unusual to have failure and glory. Failure and um, glorious victory in the same place. Here in this letter, there is the failure of Hymenaeus and Alexander and then there is the glorious victory of God in Paul's life through Christ. They're right there in the same church at the same time. That's true here. We're going to see failure and glorious victory in the same place at the same time. Sometimes in the same family at the same time. Dear ones, have you or your wife or your children been in failure and yet God's victory came along and enabled you to love at the same time? Yes. Yes. I love to do I love to counsel. And I get a chance to do quite a bit of biblical counseling. Here's what happens. Somebody comes in, maybe meets with Lee and I, and as we're hearing about the problem that's going on and the failure in their home or their relationships, you know what's going on in my head? I'm 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 doing two things at once. I'm praying, I'm saying, God, help me to know what to say. And in the file cabinet of the of of my mind I'm just going there is something God has said that is important in this situation right now so I'll make a note of that maybe listen some more this is something that God has said that they need to hear they need to be encouraged they need to be reminded that God is gracious to those who don't deserve it well, it's, it's similar to that when you are saying, I want to be, I want to understand the mystery of godliness. I want to be a godly woman. I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly young person. That's the same thing. You scroll through, you scroll through these six, six things. Which one of these am I in need of? That's the one right there. And you go back and you read that scripture and you say, God, I believe this. Help me to believe it more. God, give me through Christ what I need to do what you ask me to do. I've got a handout that I'm going to ask Doug to distribute. It's for your refrigerator. You got things you have on your refrigerator? Magnet refrigerator? Okay? It's a summary of what we've just gone through. Okay? It's a summary of what we've just gone through. It's a, it's, a sum, it's a summary of Paul's description of the mystery of godliness, the faith connections, and what will result as you trust him. And it's, it's interesting. Look at the middle column when you get this. Do you remember the faith connection? For the first one was prayer. Pray because you're an heir. Look at the, the second one, the last one. Confidence in opposition, in the midst of opposition, knowing that Jesus is praying. You know what? It is one thing for us to pray because we're confident he'll, he'll, he'll respond. But it's even more encouraging, isn't it, to know that 
He is praying even before we pray. Here's what I'd like you to do. If, if after the service is over, we're gonna, I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. After, after the service is over, if you, if you know you need help in the things that Paul was talking about to Timothy, the things we have thought about, you need help in your laboratory, whether it's your family or a relationship, let me know. If you've got a question about that, what does that look like? Let me know. Men, if you say, you know what? As, as I've been hearing about this, I want you to know someday I'd love to be an elder. Someday I'd love to be a deacon. And I want God to do whatever he has to do in me to teach me what godliness is. Where it where it comes from and how I can embrace it. I want you to let me know. We are available to you to shepherd you, to help you so that you understand the mystery of godliness. So it's no longer a mystery. And we want to shepherd the people of this church. Men who might one day be elders, men who one might might they be deacons and their wives. Because those women are going to be in the same boat as their husbands, aren't they? They're going to be in contact with people who need help. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this description of our source to live a godly life. Thank you for reminding us that the reason it seems so mysterious to us is because we have to appropriate it by faith in him. The way the reason it seems so hard is because the fruit that we have done that, that we are depending on him, is that we'll be enabled to love. Even when we're even when it's not deserved. Help us, dear Father, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.